You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Wow, you're busy. (laughs) Well, you know, if you're working for free for people who are in prison, yeah, you tend to get a lot of business. (laughs) Mark Osler is a lawyer and professor at St. Thomas University in Minneapolis. He researches clemency and works on clemency cases. Clemency is the power of the president to let someone out of prison early or to forgive them of their crime through a pardon. That's what Mark's many clients are hoping for, a pardon or a shorter sentence. And because of harsh laws enacted during the war on drugs, there are a lot of people who want his help. I'm on a driving trip out east, and I'm going to get back to my office, and I'll go to my mailbox, and there'll be a stack of brown envelopes. They'll all be from prison, and it's people telling me their life story. And I'll be honest with you, it's hard to open them. In some cases, Mark's clients are in prison for life because of one big mistake. People who are serving life sentences or something close to it, sometimes even a 10-year sentence, they lose literally everything. You know, whatever wealth they had built up, certainly they're going to lose. But the hardest loss is their families, that their parents die, their children graduate from high school and, and move on. And this all happens without them. That's why Mark does this work. He helps his clients file petitions to the Department of Justice. But once that clemency petition is submitted, there's a long wait. You've got this extended process that often takes years. Now a lot of my mail is from people who said, I submitted my petition four or five years ago. Can you help me find out where it is? It is really hard to get clemency on the federal level. There are seven layers of review through several offices in the Department of Justice and the White House. And for politicians... There's a negative decision bias built in. You're going to get in trouble by saying yes if someone then goes and commits a crime. But you're not going to get in trouble by saying no, because the harm is that that person is going to serve probably too long of a sentence. And the only person who suffers is that one person. And sadly, that's not seen as significant. Some of the Democratic candidates for president want to change this model. Senators Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and others, they're proposing a clemency review board, a federal group that would review applications for clemency and make recommendations to the president. It would be just one layer of review instead of the current seven. And that group would be appointed so they could make tough decisions without worrying about what voters might think. This idea isn't new. In fact, we've tried it before. More than 40 years ago, during a particularly divisive time in this country, an accidental president had an idea to bring the nation back together. And for the people it sought to help, it was transformative. This was big time stuff in American history and in people's lives. From the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is The Impact. I'm your host, Jillian Weinberger.
Impact is a podcast about the consequences. When people in power act or fail to act, what happens to the rest of us? This season, we're looking at the big ideas from people running for president in 2020. We're investigating how those ideas worked or didn't work in other places or at other times. We have stories of hard-fought success and epic failure. Stories that can help us imagine what might happen if those big ideas get rolled out here in the next four years. The last four years have shown us that Democrats and Republicans don't agree on a lot. But they have found consensus on at least one issue, criminal justice reform. I believe we can address the disparities in the application of criminal justice. And give former inmates a second chance to become productive members of society. After they have served their time. Between 1980 and 2013, the federal prison population skyrocketed. One of the biggest reasons why? The war on drugs. But while we locked up more and more people, usually people of color, drugs have only gotten cheaper. And the drug overdose rate has just kept climbing. So if we can agree that the war on drugs has failed, what do we do about all the people locked up because of it? In today's episode, we have a solution from our past. I announced my intention to give these young people a chance to earn their return to the mainstream of American society. In 1974, Gerald Ford became president after some of the most difficult years in our country's history. This went far beyond just a few men breaking into the Watergate. I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. More than 50,000 demonstrators protest against American action in Vietnam. By the time Ford took office, the Vietnam War had divided the country for more than a decade. While millions of Americans served in Southeast Asia, many others back home protested the war. Ford wanted to find a way to bring the country back together. To bind up the nation's wounds. Today on the show, we'll see how Ford tried to heal the nation and learn how he transformed the lives of two men as a result. And we'll find out how Ford's idea might work today for a new generation of young people behind bars. Last summer, I spent the better part of three days driving through Michigan and Wisconsin. I was there to meet... John Lehman from Racine, Wisconsin. James Dagavito, but Jim. I grew up uh, in the Upper Peninsula. John and Jim. They have a lot in common, but they've never met. They were both born in 1945, not too long after their father's return from World War II. Both are starting to show signs of their age. Hearing aids, reading glasses, and pictures of their grandchildren around the house. The other thing they have in common? Ford's clemency board. But as young men, their lives took very different paths. Our story begins in July 1967, when Jim DeGavito got his draft card in the mail. If you talk to anybody during that period of time that was drafted, it's not something you're joyful about. The chances of you going into a war zone where folks are getting killed, it's not pleasant. But no, I just uh, rolled with the punches. I ended up in Vietnam uh, 69 to 70. Jim is 74 years old now. He's short and solid with white hair that used to be blonde and a matching beard. He looks a little like Santa Claus if Santa lost 30 pounds and lifted weights. 
We talked on Jim's back porch in Lance, Michigan, a tiny town on the Upper Peninsula. When we walked the few yards from his deck to Lake Superior, I noticed his limp. He told me how he got it, out on patrol in a firefight with the Viet Cong. My radio operator was wounded pretty bad. I had a gunshot wound in the back. A small helicopter came in, and we loaded him on there and got the platoon out, and then I was medevaced to Saigon. So you you were shot in the leg? In the leg, Were you scared? Uh, the main thing is you want to keep each other alive to go home. Particularly when you're in charge of 20-some men, you want to make sure that they get home. Did they? Uh, I lost one man, and that was on a, a river crossing. The current swept him away, and we couldn't save him. That was pretty tough. Jim spent some time in the hospital on base, recuperating. And then, after about a year in Vietnam, he flew back to Michigan. So when you got home, what did you think about the war and your service? When you go into something like that drafted, you have to have a belief that they've got a plan to win it. You know, 58,000-plus lives, that's a, that's a big sacrifice and for what little we got out of that. But Jim joined the Michigan National Guard when he got back. His silver star for valor is framed, hanging on the wall in his office. He even has a customized license plate with combat wounded veterans stamped across it. So whether or not Jim thinks the war was worth it, his service continues to be a major part of his identity. I just thought it was all wrong. That's John Lehman. The Vietnam War changed his life in a very different way. The massive amount of military hardware and manpower that was being poured in. John is Jim's physical opposite. He's thin and very tall, with brown hair that flops over his forehead. He spent most of his life in Racine, Wisconsin, a small industrial city outside of Milwaukee. But in 1967, not too long after Jim got his draft card, John enrolled in graduate school at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. At the time, the campuses were beginning to rebel and a lot of student protest over the fact that the United States was beginning to draft people against their will. He remembered one class in particular. Where tear gas came in the window. John was in graduate school for history and he saw America's involvement in Vietnam through that lens. If you thought about it, you would have second thoughts about what the United States was doing there as an adjunct to the French as a colonialist power. John also thought about the war in moral terms. Religion has played a huge role in his life. He went to a Lutheran college and thought about becoming a pastor. I tried to figure out how to put faith into action. In college, he found inspiration in the civil rights movement and civil disobedience. I saw that as a Christian method of making a point. Being assertive on behalf of justice, but being willing to accept whatever punishment would come. John took those ideals to heart. While at Madison, he had a student deferment. So as long as he stayed in school, he couldn't be drafted. But John wanted to do more than just protest on campus. So... I dropped out at the end of the first semester to start a draft counseling service talking to young men about the war and about options. He wanted his peers to be informed, to know their rights with the draft. And John decided to apply as a conscientious objector. But... 
I just couldn't say that I wouldn't have supported my country during World War II. That's the one that my dad and my uncles and everybody I knew participated in. And so his application was denied. He didn't qualify as a conscientious objector. And he got an order to report to the local draft board in the summer of 1968. One morning soon after, he boarded a bus to Milwaukee, got a physical. And then you go into a room and they ask you to line up. And then an officer reads a statement that says, as a sign that you're inducted into the armed forces of the United States, take one step forward. Well, a whole room of guys stepped forward except for me. And then the officer came personally to me and he said, do you know what you're doing? I'm going to give you one more chance. And I said, yes, I know what I'm doing. I refused induction on August 5th, 1968. Refusing induction means that John refused to be drafted. And that is a felony. He did get to go home that day, but then he had to wait for the consequences. He waited for two years. Finally, one day, when he was at work... I got a phone call from a woman who lived in the same building I did. She said, John, run away. They were just here trying to arrest you. And anyway, as the phone call came in, there were two husky guys in suits kind of walking toward my desk. They were there to arrest me at work. John's parents helped him get a lawyer, and they fought his case at the federal courthouse in Milwaukee. I faced five years in jail and $10,000 fine as the maximum penalty for induction refusal. And until Judge Gordon on my sentencing day said, 90 days in jail, 21 months hospital work, I could have been going to jail for five years. Three months in jail, 21 months working in a hospital. It could have been much worse. But the federal bureaucracy moves slowly, and John had to wait two more years before he could finally serve his sentence. John told me those years in limbo were actually harder than the jail time or the low-wage work, not knowing the moment when his life would suddenly be interrupted. The most difficult thing is to be a young person and not know what you can do with your life. By the time John finally went to jail, fall of 1972, most of his friends had settled into a career. They were buying houses, getting married, having kids. That's what Jim DeGavito was doing up in Michigan. John worried he'd never do any of those things, except one. A few months before he began his sentence, he started spending a lot of time with a young woman named Kathy. After John reported to jail, they wrote letters every day. And then one day, Kathy came to visit. I actually uh, proposed to Kathy when I was in Waukesha County Jail through a piece of glass about two inches thick with a little phones and microphone. Wasn't I lucky? She said yes. (laughs) She is a very courageous woman to do that. Courageous because John's sentence wasn't the end of his troubles. He still had a felony conviction on his record. Her parents were worried that I wouldn't be able to get a decent job, that I wouldn't be employable. That would be hard on both of us. And for many years, it was. We're driving down College Avenue, the only brick street left in recent. The next day, John took me on a driving tour of his hometown. The White House on the right is where my wife grew up. Eventually, we got to what looked like a small college campus. Lots of old brick buildings, wide lawns. 
Straight ahead, it's about four square blocks here. It's the Coven Foundation for church work. John and Kathy moved to the foundation campus for John's job. I did all kinds of maintenance work. Before he went to jail, John taught high school, history and social studies. He reapplied for his old job when he finished his work sentence, but the school wouldn't hire him back. So with few options left, he became a maintenance guy. I built a firewall around one of the furnaces in this basement. I built like 50-some storm windows. He was a very overqualified janitor, but the job came with a big perk. I worked here for a free apartment for no cash. No salary. So for him to contribute any income at all, John had to take on a second job. But at least he and Kathy had a place of their own. John pointed to an old brick building with warped windows. That's where we lived, right there. It's above a garage. There's a door, one, two, three windows. So it was my wife and I and our baby. It was 1974. He was a 29-year-old college-educated maintenance worker with a felony on his record. Back on the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, Jim Dugavito had been home from Vietnam for about five years. He was working at a nearby university, and in August of that same year, 1974, he got a call from a military official in his home state. He said a clemency board. I said, what is this about? He didn't know. The general who called wanted to know if he could submit Jim's name for some kind of committee in Washington, D.C. He told him... Ford wanted someone from Michigan. This was just a few weeks into Gerald Ford's presidency. Ford grew up in Grand Rapids, and he wanted a Michigan veteran on whatever this new committee was. Jim said, sure, submit my name. And he didn't think too much about it. Until one Monday morning when a call came in at work. The White House called, and our uh, secretary, Eva, hung up on him. She said, the prank call, you know. Where you were working, the secretary picked up the phone and they said, this is the White House. And she said, no. I was out in the field. But they were persistent. They called back again. Coming up, Mr. Dugavito goes to Washington, giving John Lehman a new lease on life and a chance for the nation to heal after a decades-long war. That's after the break. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. Jim Dugavito took his very first trip to our nation's capital on September 24th, 1974. We stayed at the Hay Adams across from Lafayette Park. The suite they put me in was bigger than the apartment I had at the time. The next morning, Jim met his fellow board members. At just 28 years old, 
Jim was the youngest person there. The only peon on the board. Everybody else was fairly well known. Jim met the rest of them that day. There were two university presidents, a general, a marine, a former senator, an attorney. There was one woman, a Puerto Rican lawyer from New York, and one African-American man, Vernon Jordan, then the director of the National Urban League. It wasn't a very diverse group in terms of gender or race, but ideologically, they were really different. A mix towards the liberal side and the conservative side. Here is how it worked. People like John Lehman would fill out an application for clemency, and the board reviewed applications in groups of three. The board members never learned anyone's name, just the facts of the case. They brought the ones they wanted to approve to the full group. Having served in Vietnam, did you have concerns about granting them clemency? No, not after I heard the stories, you know. You can say that you're going to be very hard on those folks. But once we started to get the feedback on what some of the stories were, then that kind of softened you up a little bit. One young man was drafted and went to Vietnam and got a bronze star for valor and did everything the country asked. And just a few months to go, came back. And rather than give him a big hug and say, thank you, they sent him to a military post for that 90 or 120 days. At that post, there was a, an older sergeant, never had been to Vietnam. That young man with the Bronze Star, he had to say yes, sir, to a sergeant who had no idea what he'd been through in Vietnam. No idea what it was like. He had to starch his fatigues and polish his boots. He got fed up and left for home a month or two early, which means he went AWOL. Seven years later, picked up a traffic violation and less than honorable discharge. A less than honorable discharge is like having a rap sheet. There's jail time, and it's harder to get a job and VA benefits. He did everything the country wanted. Our system didn't take care of that when it came back. That was an easy case for Jim. He recommended clemency, and the board agreed. It wasn't always that easy. Jim remembered this other case, a guy who was in prison, but not because of the military. He'd been convicted of armed robbery. The feeling that I had there was that uh, he couldn't perform in the military and couldn't perform in society. To Jim, someone in prison for armed robbery didn't deserve the same treatment as the young man with the Bronze Star. If we were going to do something that the president was going to sign, there has to be some constraints to it to make it worthwhile. If you put everybody in there, then it didn't have much of a meaning. Jim describes himself as a conservative— These days, he carries his keys on a Trump for America keychain. Back in the 1970s, not everyone on the clemency board agreed with him. But that was what President Ford wanted, an ideologically diverse group. Liberals and conservatives, military men and politicians against the war. They had to work together to make decisions. And over the course of a year, that's what Jim did. He flew to Washington almost every week to review cases including, eventually, John Lehman's. I had a phone conversation with people from the clemency board asking questions about my application. When John applied for clemency, he was still living in that little apartment above the garage at the foundation where he worked for free. He didn't know what to expect. He still felt stuck. Whoa, I still don't have a solid career decision, and I'm 30 years old here. There still was a lot of uncertainty, a lot of wondering, and I was really fortunate that Kathy put up with all that. John showed me a diary entry from around that time, in late 1974. I spin my wheels, it says. 
he wrote that he envied a friend with a full speed ahead, all excited attitude about life. Finally, in July 1975, nearly seven years after he refused induction, John got a letter from the Department of Justice. He opened it in that cramped apartment above the garage in Racine, Wisconsin. It's framed and hanging on the wall in his home office now. Gerald R. Ford, President of the United States of America, has this day granted unto John Warren Lehman a full pardon. It just makes such a difference in a person's life. I was hired back into the public school system, Racine Unified Schools. If you hadn't gotten the clemency, do you think they would have... I think that made a big difference. Were there other things that you were able to do because you had your record wiped clean? Well, running for public office is the biggest one. In 1988, John ran for alderman, city council in Racine. He won. A few years later... Ran for state senate and was also successful. But all of that was possible because it was legal. I was not a felon and I could serve in the state legislature. John went on to spend most of his career in public service as an alderman, state senator, and a teacher. He supported his family of five on that salary, helped his daughters pay for college. Most of that would have been impossible without the pardon. The clemency board gave him a second chance. We are at our best when we are strong and merciful. And the framers knew that. And that's why they put the pardon power in the Constitution. Mark Osler, the defense attorney we heard from at the start, He wants a second chance for his clients, too. He wants them to be able to provide for their families and serve their communities and live their lives as they choose. He told me about one of them, a guy named Ronald Blunt. And he was serving life for trafficking in crack. He was so addicted to crack that he had to sleep on his mom's porch, and he only had one change of clothes. And his conspiracy mostly involved him doing small jobs for family members who were selling crack and telling people where to go buy crack as he was begging for change in the park. In 2016, Ronald became one of the lucky few to get clemency. President Obama commuted his sentence. And Mark went to see Ronald after he got out of prison. And walked in the front door and saw him cooking stuff up on the stove and taking care of his mom. It was a great moment. Not every victory is having a parade. Sometimes it's just seeing someone in freedom cooking up something on the stove. Thank you so much for listening, and we want to hear from you, so please email comments and questions to impact at vox.com or tweet us at hashtag impactpodcast. The Impact is edited by Amy Drozdowska. Our producer is Bird Pinkerton. Liz Nelson is Vox's editorial director for podcasts. Mixing and scoring by Jared Paul, with help from Paul Mounsey. We had music from Jukebox the Ghost, APM, and Poddington Bear. Special thanks to Herman Lopez and Sarah Cliff. And thank you also to Zach Kahn, Marika Baldamberg, and Lauren Katz for all their help with marketing and engagement. I'm Jillian Weinberger. Talk to you next week. <laughs>